and welcome to What's Next for the EU, the European People's Party Group's podcast. My name is Georgina Wright and I'm the head of the Europe programme at the Paris-based think tank Institut Mondaine. The European Union faces many challenges today, from within and outside of its borders, from tackling climate change to supporting European industry and dealing with competitive neighbours. More than ever before, people are divided over the EU, its purpose and the role that it should play. The European Union has launched a new conference on the future of Europe, an initiative designed to ask EU citizens what they want and what they expect from the EU. So what do EU citizens want? Over the next weeks, I will be asking guests what they think the EU's future should look like and what its priorities should be. Joining me today is Alain Lemessour, a French politician and former member of the European Parliament, and Carlo Ivanizzi Acetti, assistant professor at the City University of New York and also affiliated to Sciences Po Paris. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. It's great to have you. So as I said, the EU has launched its conference on the future of Europe on the 9th of May and it's expected to conclude in the spring of next year. Alain, perhaps I could start with you. You became a member of the European Parliament in 1989 through to 1993, and then again in 1999 until the present. You've seen the EU grow both in size and power. Why do you think it's important that we speak about the future of Europe today? It's important because we are turning a page in our history. When the original proposal of the conference was made by President Macron two or three years ago, we were witnessing a new chapter in European history with Brexit, of course, unfortunately. But with the pandemic and its fallout, it is in the great book of global history that a page is now turning. And so now is the time to specify our expectations about the EU all over Europe, in all member states, and to listen both to the the leaders and the citizens. Uh, Thank you very much for that. And also interesting that you brought up Brexit, but obviously there are a lot of other challenges that the EU has dealt with recently, not least uh, the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. Carlo, you've spent a number of years looking at sort of the evolution of the EU. Has the EU done this sort of grand exercise before, asking EU citizens what they think? Well, the European Union has always been a very self-reflexive process and set of institutions. And I should say that Christian Democrats have always had an important role in this process of thinking through what the European Union would be at various stages in its history. Even before the European Union was created, the Nouvelles Equipes Internationales was a forum of essentially Christian Democrats from various countries around Europe that developed many of the ideas that then fed into the Schuman Report and the creation of the European Union. And throughout its history, the European Union has continued to interrogate itself on what it should be. For instance, in the 1970s, the famous Tindemans Report was commissioned by the Commission and led to further integration. And then almost all the commissions have had some kind of reflection on the future of Europe. The Prodi Commission had a reflection on Europe, Juncker Commission. So what I think is different today is the process, not the the, the substance, is that instead of this being a top-down process where European leaders get together and try to think of what the European Union should be, the idea here is of a bottom-up 
reflection, where, and I mentioned, Macron had done something similar also in France, involving the citizen in a big national debate. So what is different now is not the reflection on Europe's future, which has been a constant process throughout European history, but the idea of trying to involve in a bottom-up way the citizens as much as possible. Great, thank you very much for that. And it's it's always interesting, I think, to put things into perspective and historical context as well of what's already happened. And perhaps we can come back to some of the lessons um, that we can learn from past experiences and see perhaps how we can use those um, as we go through this year um, and you know follow the conference on the future of Europe. Um, Alain, you've had a role in shaping the EU, both as a minister with special responsibility for EU affairs under French President uh, Mitterrand, and as well as a member of the European Parliament, of course. And you spent sort of countless hours listening to people's concerns, you know, speaking to legislators from all sort of different institutions and different countries. And I guess I, I've sort of got two questions for you. The first is, do you think it's right that trust levels in the EU are so low at the moment? And you know, what do you think the EU needs to do to rebuild that political trust at this time? Paradoxically, an unexpected and positive fallout from the pandemic and its economic consequences, it's what I would call the, the Zoom effect or WebEx effect, because WebEx is the platform used by the EPP, which is now enjoyed by the EU. Uh, why uh, WebEx effect? Because WebEx and, and Zoom had existed for one decade, but were underused. And due to the pandemic, we discovered that there were uh, other means uh, of uh, exchanging views, uh, no longer face-to-face, -face, but uh, through, uh, uh, unfortunately, remotely, online. And we can also add uh, both ways, virtual and real meetings. And it's the same with Europe. The general public has discovered that on many key issues involving a global dimension, be it uh, financial crisis, migration pressures, global warming, challenges posed by Chinese or Russian belligerents, and now pandemics, if the EU is not on the front line, our national policies are doomed to failure. And like Zoom or WebEx and other online meeting platforms, the EU has been available for years, more than a decade for the Lisbon Treaty, but ineptly underestimated and underused. And as uh, the platforms won't replace face-to-face -face meetings, but has become irreplaceable uh, in their roles, the EU won't replace national roles, but it is now far better perceived as an indispensable instrument. But to foster that fragile political expectations and turn it into trust, genuine trust, the EU must deliver. Two ambitious pronouncements, particularly in the European Council, too much complacency have been detrimental. But we also need to break the vicious circle Whenever something gets wrong, national leaders and media blame the EU. Whenever the EU is successful, national leaders take all the praise vindicated by chauvinist media. As long as there is no Mrs. Europe or Mr. Europe elected by citizens and accountable to them to deliver and to take on all of the responsibility for the outcome, brighter or darker outcome, 
citizens will look on the EU as an international organization out of their reach and not as part of their national leadership. Europe will remain them and not us. It's less a problem of trust than of ownership. Thank you, Alain. And I, I wonder with WebEx, which I find a particularly unfriendly uh, digital platform, but yet it is, you're absolutely right. Um, it's that ability to connect with people who aren't all based in the same city, uh, let alone country, and who are able to sort of discuss about areas of concern together and try and brainstorm solutions. Carlo, you, you were nodding as, as Alain was speaking there, and obviously Alain's listed a number of things that he thinks would be essential to kind of foster that trust, including have a clear person who identifies for you, greater accountability uh, from you know member states, EU governments, acknowledging what the EU is doing, and then perhaps when the EU is failing or is being complacent, you know, an ability to react faster. But I was wondering if we could look perhaps um, more closely at particular policies. So in his biography, the German Chancellor Konrad Adenauer wrote that one of the EU, or rather the European Economic Community, as it was called at that time's biggest missed opportunities, was the failure to create a European Defence Union. And we saw that President Biden uh, just this month also said that actually the US was ready to recognise and support the EU taking on a greater defence role. Do you think now is the right moment for the EU to take on that role? Well, before I get to this question about defence, yeah, I was nodding when Alan talked about ownership instead of trust, because I thought that was a very useful way of reframing it, moving out of precisely out of these questions of trust and even questions of policy into questions of politics, into questions of democracy. Maybe we'll come back and talk more about that later, but I, I thought that was a very useful point, Alain, uh, ownership instead of trust. It's a much more political concept uh, that I prefer. But uh, returning to your question, Georgina, um, Defense. This has been, again, an ongoing question throughout the history of Europe. Soon after the Rome Treaty, there was an attempt to make a European defense union. There has always been an attempt to make a European defense union. Now, is now the right time? I think it depends from the perspective you, you look at it from. From an external perspective, and again, relating to something Alan was saying before, Global changes in the domain of international relations, the, the end of the Cold War, the rise of a multipolar war, world, belligerent Russia, belligerent China, all of these things make a very powerful case for the idea of a strong European defense union, especially if the Europeans don't want to remain under the US security umbrella, if we don't want to remain dependent on NATO, which is a Cold War tool and was supposed to be temporary from the beginning, and many people in Europe are annoyed by US imperialism, well, if you're against US imperialism, you, you should have your own defense. So from an external perspective, yes. The problem is internally. Internally, I think in domestic countries, there is very little appetite or support for something like that today. So if you want a democratic union, I don't necessarily think that this is the best starting point at the moment because defense is seen as one of the main attributes of sovereignty. And I think, uh, talk about referendums, talk about democracy, talk about this would not fly, I think. Which is why talking about other policies, and again, relating to something Alan was saying before, the reaction to, of the European Union uh, to the coronavirus, the coronavirus has shown there's a big demand. 
there's a big demand for Europe and there's a big demand for a, a need for European coordination. And initially, in my opinion, the reaction with the next generation EU project was very positive. And even in countries where Euroscepticism was on the rise, like mine, Italy, everybody wanted Europe to do something. And when Europe sent this relief package, everybody was happy. So I think more than defense, social policy is the way to move forward now. Corona bonds, redistribution within the European Union amongst member states, and a, a strong social Europe seem to me more important ways of building the European Union now rather than defence. Thank you for that. And I and I think it's interesting when you look at polls that suggest that actually when you ask you know citizens from Europe, would you agree that the EU does more in terms of solidarity? There's sort of an empathetic, yes, absolutely, we should help each other. But actually, when it comes down to how you do it, that's where there's a lot of confusion about who decides on my behalf and do I have a say over these decisions that are going to ultimately impact me? And perhaps that's something we can come to a bit later. So you've both highlighted ways that the EU could get its act together, if I can say it that way, and just do more. You know, there's been countless strategy papers, speeches, declarations. I mean, Alain must have seen his fair share. But still, I think there are many EU citizens that are either distrustful or just completely apathetic about sort of what the EU does. Alain, the Conference on the Future of Europe is going to hopefully see Europeans across the continent organise and participate in events and submit recommendations, uh, hopefully use WebEx as a way to come together. And all of this is going to feed into a, a final report. But do you think this is enough to get Europeans engaged and particularly those perhaps who, who don't follow the EU every day and who don't really understand how the EU functions? Well, on this uh, important question, uh, I will be less optimistic. Who will feel engaged, by whom, and on what? For instance, what legitimacy for samples of citizens drawn at random, which is uh, an original feature of the current Conference of the Future of Europe, if compared with the Convention uh, on the uh, Future of Europe uh, 15 years ago. In 2002, uh, the European Convention was composed of elected members. It was chaired by a charismatic and well-tried president, President Giscard d'Estaing. It was assigned a precise task to draw up a comprehensive new treaty. And it was successful. Managing to reach a consensus among representatives of 28 countries was quite an achievement. The current conference on the future of Europe is a mishmash of elected politicians and the panels of citizens with a triple chairmanship and no agenda. It is purported to hear and express deep popular sentiments not yet heard or comprehended by the elected representatives at whatever level. Well, I have my doubts. Carlo is more hopeful and he speaks of a bottom-up approach. Well, I would say it's a top-down decision to invite citizens, those interested, to participate. Sincerely, I have my doubt. For me, what is really at stake and the more important goal and more, the most important outcome of this exercise should be that the governments take this opportunity 
to ask the question of trust among themselves around the table, who is willing and ready to go further on what European goals, with, with how much money and how, on social issues, as uh, hinted or suggested by uh, Carlo, uh, on defense, on foreign policy, on migration, uh, on uh, global warming, etc., uh, uh, etc. Et and according to the answers, for instance, enhanced corporations uh, could be uh, triggered. For me, it would be the, the best outcome, possible outcome of this exercise, and of course, uh, not underestimating uh, all the many uh, proposals uh, which can uh, emerge uh, from the citizen, but it will be a, a material uh, very difficult to work with. Thank you, Alain. And I think that's a really important question about sort of once you have the report, who enacts it, who takes ownership of that report, and how do you really sort of reach those and engage those citizens who you might not even know about the conference on the future of Europe. And I guess, Carlo, you know, and I'm saying there, it is a top-down attempt for a bottom-up response. Do you think that's the way sort of, you know, to go about it? How can we ensure, really, that this conference and the EU, for that matter, reaches out to those perhaps who feel less strongly about the EU? So that's very interesting that we're using these terms. And I happen actually to agree very much with what Alain was saying, because I don't think democracy or citizen participation can be reduced to these categories of top down or bottom up, because precisely what is missing is the intermediary dimension, the one of parties, the one of organizations, the one in the middle. So the European project was historically a top down project. Uh, it was historically done by elites, and then uh, people were asked to validate it when they were after the fact. More or less, starting in the 1990s, Europe became more involved with more things and decided it needed democratic legitimation. And in, it paradoxically, I have written about this, uh, adopted a populist idea of democracy, where populist is like, let's have the people vote once in a while on what we did. And that's the bottom up. I actually think that democracy requires a middle. Between the top and the bottom, there needs a mediation. There needs to be institutions that enable, that organize people, that structure the participation. This is the role that traditionally political parties, trade unions, let me say even churches, civil society have done. And this is what is missing in the EU conception of democracy and is very much manifested in the way this conference is structured. Whereas exactly as Alain said, the top asks the bottom to speak but the bottom is unarticulated, it's not structured. So if we want to, to answer your question, if you want to structure EU democracy, what do you need to structure? What do you need to foster? You foster parties. You need to foster intermediary organizations like political parties, like trade unions, like churches, all the things that enable citizens to be heard because one voice on a WebEx meeting gets lost in the crowd unless it is organized by a political party which speaks with a much more powerful because organized and structured voice. So actually, I don't think that a conference can replace elections. The, the advantage of elections is that elections structure votes in parties. So if I wanted to launch one proposal in the spirit of this conference, which I have just criticized along the lines of, of Alain, how do you create European intermediary institutions? 
institutions that mediate between EU citizens and the institutions. Well, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. How were national political parties created? When you had national democracies, when you have electoral democracies at the national level, then you have European parties. European elections are not really European elections. They remain structured on a national basis. That's why what you have at the European level is groups of, of national parties rather than European parties. That's one example of an institutional change, the change in the way European elections are done, would create the intermediary layer of organization that are essential to ensure real citizen participation. And here's, I'm skeptical like Alain, this, what we're doing now is not real citizen participation to, until it will be structured around political parties and political projects which are collective rather than individual. Hence the role of the European People's Party. For instance, yeah, but exactly. for now, the European People's Party is not a, a party, it's exactly. actually a group. That's the problem. Yes, I agree with you completely. But become, parties are the form. It should become a genuine European political party and, and not only a confederation of national ones. Absolutely. That, that is, I think, the key for the democratization of Europe. Yes, I agree with you. Yeah. Which is, of course, interesting because, you know, the EU, but the EPP in particular, has been putting up, you know, um, a series of sort of recommendations to try and really foster that sort of European democracy to get more participation and more ownership over the EU process. And I'm sure these are some of the things that we will see the uh, European People's Party coming back to um, throughout this year and throughout the conference. Um, Alain, before I ask my, my last question, is there anything that you wanted to come back to on, on what Carlo was saying? Because you were nodding very enthusiastically there. No, I, I think we, we see things along the same lines and uh, eye to eye. If we come back to the comparison with the European Convention in 2002, the risk then was to fail. And this time for this conference, uh, the risk uh, is uh, being uh, irrelevant uh, and uh, unnoticed by many of the citizens. For instance, those who are now working and I congratulate them. Uh, it's very difficult uh, to set up this uh, platform uh, to uh, enable all uh, European citizens uh, to, to, to connect. Well, uh, they will be happy if one, two or three million citizens connect. But out of 460 million, it, it, it's nothing. And as you uh, say yourself, how many citizens are aware today that there is a conference on the future of Europe and how many will be. We are now, uh, our German friends are now campaigning for the very important federal elections in Germany next fall, immediately after the summer break. Who is speaking of the future of Europe and this conference of the future in Europe in the election campaign? In France, we'll be campaigning uh, next year, I doubt, uh, that uh, the uh, outcome or the first uh, outcome of the uh, the conference uh, will be uh, um, uh, part uh, of the, the debate, unfortunately. So uh, we must take advantage of everything which can come out of the conference, but, but uh, after the conference, it will be up to the governments. Uh, to decide for further steps forward. Of course, building on uh, these sentiments expressed by the citizens, some of them through the conference, and most of them, possibly all of them, 
during the next uh, election campaign for the European Parliament. Which is, of course, essential. And we know that, that the EPP has been doing a lot to try and raise awareness about, about the conference and trying to galvanise people to, to engage. And, of course, we've seen the French government, but also other governments trying to raise awareness about the conference as well. And, of course, the European Commission setting up the website. So we'll have to see over the coming months, um, I guess, how, how much sort of um, participation there's been and what recommendations come out of it. My last question, I think, is going to be fairly straightforward. If you could describe the future of Europe in just one word or sort of the hope that you get of the future of Europe in one word, what would that be? Carlo, maybe I can start with you. The word I would choose, if I can give a bit of explanation, the word would be open. And the reason is that there has been a, a, a tendency in the way of interpreting the European Union, which is very... I would call it a kind of tunnel vision, both from the EU supporters and from the EU critics. The EU supporters have a teleological idea where the EU integration is a necessary, inevitable, more and more ever closer union. And the, the skeptics say EU is destined to die and it's a failed, doomed project. If the EU is ever going to become a democracy, both of these teleological tunnel visions have to be overcome. And we have to say the future of the European Union is up to us to be made. And therefore, for that reason, my word is open. Great. Thank you. Alain, what would your word be? My word would be a family. Uh, a huge mistake we made uh, in the European Convention was to drop the word community. Uh, and it, it, it's very uh, regrettable uh, because it described uh, the uh, novelty and originality uh, of the uh, EU better than the more vague uh, word uh, union. A family, a family of states, and through the states, a family of nations, of peoples. It will take a century to transpose to peoples the extraordinary family relations, which combine unity of the group, where and when necessary, this unity, and the independence and identity of its members, and peace and love among them, a family. Peace and love, what a great way to, to end this very first podcast. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you so much to my speakers, Alain and Carlo, and to you all for listening. Please join me next time where I'll be asking our guests about their views of Europe and whether we should support further enlargement to the East in the future. Feel free to share this podcast on your favourite social media platforms. And if you want to get in touch, you can reach the EPP on their website www.eppgroup.eu and of course on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Thank you very much. Bye.